This is the Commons LA Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the biblical teachings and sermons from our Sunday gatherings. For more information on how you can get connected at the Commons LA, please check us out online at thecommonsla.com. There's a lot of great information there. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. All right, I already mentioned this. Matthew 11, will you stand with me as we read Matthew 11, verses 11 through 19. I'll be reading from the CSB, which is what you have printed in your liturgical handout. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Lord Jesus, we ask that by your Spirit we would see you we would hear you, we would know you, and we would obey you a little bit more today. Please teach us, Spirit of God, to live in the kingdom of our Heavenly Father. Teach us to live in the kingdom of our Heavenly Father, moment by moment, in our mundane, everyday kind of lives. We yearn for it. It feels too good to be true so often, and yet we want to lean in believing that you knew what you were speaking of, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come and be our guide. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So last week, remind me, what's the big theme that we talked about? Anybody remember? Learning to, learning to pray on mission. Nope, I'm going to start asking other questions. You can't rely on rote habit. Last week, we talked about gospel of the kingdom of God. Yeah. We talked about how it's, it's so normal. It's so normal for many of us to assume that the gospel has something to do merely with forgiveness of sins and forget that the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, that 10,000-foot gospel, is the fact that in him the kingdom of God is here, and with it, forgiveness of sins comes. Yes, that's the entrance into the kingdom of God is through forgiveness, but it is not centrally about the forgiveness of sins. It's centrally about a new way of life with God in his presence and walking in his power. 
And so we unpacked that a bit. I'd encourage you, go back and listen to it because it, if we don't understand that element, that following Jesus is centrally about learning life in his kingdom, everything else begins to, to get disrupted. It can't find its proper place. Today, we're asking the question, how do we live in that kingdom that's here? Kind of begs the question. Last week it was, enter in, follow Jesus. Live in this new dimension, like Brian when he taught. It's like this alternate reality that's right here in front of us. This dimension, right? And union with Christ as we enter into it. If you remember all the way back to our Ephesians series, what was the sound that he made? Not quite. I love that though. Yeah, the whoa, 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 whoa. It's like in sci-fi, when you enter into like a portal and you have that sound cross over your ears where you're entering into this liminal space and passing through into a new reality. How is it that we live our embodied existence here in Westwood, West LA, wherever you are in the kingdom of God? So this message that Jesus speaks in Matthew 11 is after the messengers of John the baptizer come to him and say, hey, John wants to know, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one that he thought was coming? Are you the Lord's Christ, the Messiah? And Jesus tells him, go back, tell him what you see. You see that the, the sick are healed. You see all of these different things that the kingdom of God has prophesied to bring about in the book of Isaiah. And then he gives commentary, what we read this morning, on this kingdom of God, specifically as it relates to the time of John the baptizer until the moment he was speaking. And if I'm really honest, this is, this is a weird passage of scripture, isn't it? It's weird. He says, the greatest or the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John, but that's not even the weirdest part. The weirdest, like... The violent, the kingdom is subjected to violence, and the violent take it by force. Isn't that just confusing? It doesn't fit into the theological structures that most of us have. Because as we've read scriptures, we've been taught how to follow Jesus. We don't have a place for something like this. Okay? We have an important lesson here, just on the side. Whenever scripture doesn't fit into your theological understanding and like the system that you use to try and comprehend something, it's not the scripture that's wrong. It's that our theology needs to adjust. It needs to expand and make some room for something like this, right? So we can't move past it. We don't want to ignore it. The base of what Jesus is saying is that John was the end of an era in the, in the history of what God was doing in the world. John the baptizer came, he was prophesied in the Old Testament in places like Malachi, uh, no, Micah, no, Malachi, Malachi, in places like Malachi as this Elijah, this, this bringing forth of the same spirit that was in the prophet Elijah to come back again and to point towards the Lord's Christ. So just imagine with me, I guess for you guys, it's on this side, John comes, okay, John is here. Everything before him was the law and the prophets. Then Jesus comes and John hands his baton to Jesus. And now Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. We read that last week. Now in Matthew 11, 
One to three years have gone by since that inauguration of Jesus' ministry, and his commentary is, from that moment where I first came on the scene until right now, the kingdom of God is suffering violence, and the violent take it by force. So something really different is now happening. The kingdom of God is something that people can somehow exert their will in a way that Jesus equates to violence, and it responds. Now, he doesn't make it clear whether this violence is a good thing or a bad thing, but I think that the best interpretation for us is going to be that it's a good thing, that it's a commendable thing. That it's what Jesus intends for all of his followers to understand. The best explanation, the most coherent and compelling that I have heard is from Dallas Willard, an amazing author, philosophy professor at the university that must not be named in the, uh, the 90s and 2000s. It's USC, if you didn't know. <clears throat> he wrote this about this passage. Toward the midpoints of his years in public ministry, Jesus reflected on a remarkable change that had occurred when his cousin, the baptizer, passed the torch of God's word onto him. John was, Jesus remarked, as great as any human being who ever lived. Yet, he still functioned from within the limited framework where God's action, rule, and governance was primarily channeled through the official practices of Jewish rituals and institutions, through the law and the prophets, as the phrase was then used. But since John, Jesus continued, we no longer stand on proprieties. The kingdom of the heavens, which is Matthew's way of saying the kingdom of God, is subjected to violence and violent people take it by force. That is. The rule of God, meaning the reign of God, now present in the person of Jesus himself, submits to approaches that were previously not possible. Personal need and confidence in Jesus permits any person to blunder right into God's realm. And once in, they have an astonishing new status. Those least in the kingdom of the heavens are greater than John. So what Dallas Willard is helping us to begin to comprehend is that Jesus is saying, among everyone before him, John the baptizer was the apex. He was the prototype of what humanity could have been under the law and the prophets. Now though, anyone who turns to follow Jesus in the way of the kingdom of the heavens is greater than him. Now, we could take that in a couple of ways, right? We could take that in the way of status, right? Their status, our status is greater than that of John. I don't know that that helps us too much. What Dallas seems to be saying here is that the ways, the methods of God's kingdom are now subjected to human beings in a way that they were not beforehand. I mean, before, you needed, to, you needed to go to Jerusalem, into the temple, sacrifice in order to get into God's presence, and there you were dwelling. Now, here, in Jesus, by His Spirit, 
We dwell and live in the presence of God in a very real way. But more than that, I think, according to Dallas, what he is saying here is that the way of faith in the kingdom of God is like violence. He's helping us to hear that the active reign of God in the world is now in Jesus submitted to human beings in a way that it couldn't have been before. Faith is how we live in the kingdom of God. But not totally in the way that we probably came into those doors imagining it. Because biblically, faith has two elements to it. Most of us came in with the first element, and most of us feel really uh, naive and like little infants in the second element. Okay? The first element is. We take on the reality of Jesus and entrust ourselves to him in our view of the world. So it's us looking at Jesus and saying, he's right. I trust him. I want to follow him. I believe in him. He died for my sins so that I could live with him in his resurrection. It's agreement with Jesus. It's saying what he says is true and who he claimed to be is true. And the good news is that for any of us who have made that confession of faith, we're in. The Spirit has come and opened the eyes of our hearts to that reality. If you have any kindling of love for Jesus, of affection for him, of adoring him, of awe in him, of gratitude towards him, it's because the Spirit of God has brought Faith into your heart. That's something to be wildly encouraged about today. You can't see Jesus in our own power. That's what Jesus said when he simply said, according to the flesh, it's not possible. The Spirit of God is the only way that anyone can enter in and see him. All right? That's the first way. That's what Hebrews 11.1 is saying. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. That first kind of faith shapes our vision of reality. My favorite definition of reality is the thing you bump into when you're wrong. The thing you run into when you're wrong. Okay? That first idea of of faith, that first defining factor of faith, makes us Christians, but it's not completely comprehensive in what Scripture says. The second element of faith, what Jesus is alluding to here in Matthew 11 is external action or obedience. Faith that remains in our minds is not the full orbed picture of faith we see in the scriptures. The first faith makes you a Christian, the second faith makes you a disciple. It's the willingness to say, Jesus, I not only believe who you said you were, I must follow you because where else will I find the words of life? My hope is that we would be a people that are dead set, yes, of course, on the first, that our hope for all of eternity would be in Jesus and what he's done for us, but that we wouldn't stop there, that we would stir one another up, that we would spur each other on to say, 
Let's learn to live in this kingdom here and now by faith. But faith is not just saying, yeah, of course Jesus is alive. Faith is doing what Jesus said last week in Mark 1, 14 and 15 when he said the implication of this kingdom being here is repent and believe. Repent and believe is another way of saying have faith. Live by faith in what I'm telling you. Remember the analogy, the metaphor of the electricity? We talked about how like out in Palos Verdes, out in the boondocks of L.A. County, uh, where they probably don't even have electricity yet, one day they're going to get electricity, and then they'll have the power of electricity. But you need to conduct it. You need to flip the switch on. You need to live by that power. Faith in the kingdom of God is us living by the power of God. It's us doing two things. Drawing into his presence to live there. Why Jesus said things like, Abide in me. Remain in me. It's why places like James 1 say, maybe it's not 1, don't quote me on that. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is a kingdom reality that was not possible before Jesus. And so faith in part looks like drawing near to God. It looks like us saying, Lord, you are the one that I need right now. You are available to me. I want to draw near to you. I want to live with you. It's drawing into his presence, but it's also walking in his power. There's a really, really uncomfortable thing that Jesus does with you and me. He expects you and me who follow him to learn how to enact the power of the kingdom of God. That's why he said things to his first disciples. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Proclaim the kingdom. You see, we learn something jarring about God if this is true. The rest of scripture bears it out as well. He's not the sovereign Lord who enjoys doing things his way on his own. He enjoys using his sovereignty in the world to work through others. Neither one violates the other. That's why the Psalms say things like, the Lord sits in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But also, commands you and I to take hold of the kingdom of God, to seek first the kingdom of God. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you have been ushered. So to be an apprentice or a disciple or a follower of Jesus instead of merely a Christian is to enjoy and live out of God's presence, but also to learn to walk in his power. Okay? Now, this is simpler than it sounds. You want to know the most basic way we get to conduct God's power? Prayer. Prayer is not us sending a homing pigeon or a messenger owl 
to God to say, hey, could you please do this for us? Prayer, we certainly make our requests known. Prayer is the holy power of the presence of God moving through us as his priest kings and queens here on earth. Okay? It's the restoration of the Garden of Eden, partially and imperfectly, here and now, where Adam and Eve, our first parents, were created to steward, to enact, to do God's will, because His power would flow through them. So the really uncomfortable thing for you and me, if we want to follow Jesus, is that as we seek to do what Jesus does in the world today, He's going to call us to step out in faith in ways that if he doesn't come through, we're going to feel a little silly. I can't help you get around that. There are ways where you need to be willing to look like a naive little child in the eyes of the really smart, mature world around us. I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he compares the Pharisees to like children who have children calling out to them in the marketplace. We rejoiced, but you refused to rejoice. We sang a lament, but you wouldn't lament with us. The problem with the Pharisees was that they were immovable. They would not act on what Jesus was teaching them. says, John came lamenting. He said, repent, repent, return to God. It was supposed to be a message of sorrow for all of us who feel just broken over the world and its darkness. And then Jesus comes saying, rejoice, the kingdom of God is here. Enter in, come on. And they wouldn't rejoice. They wouldn't go. They'd say, you're a glutton and a drunkard. Surely God can't love you. Surely you can't be God's messenger. So that they could sit there smug saying, we see through it all. They didn't have faith. They may have even had a very biblical worldview. They just missed the Messiah. Here's my plea for us. Is yes, if we could learn, excuse me, learn and grow in a worldview, and a vision that says Jesus is the beginning and the end of everything. He is trustworthy. He's true. We know where all of this is headed. We want to be growing in that first dimension of faith. But we need to grow and commit ourselves to learning how to be the conduits of God's kingdom in the world here and now. And that's the part where it feels you know, we have apologetics to help us with the first part, but there is nothing that can help us. When we're praying for someone, we speak over them, be healed in Jesus' name. We just emulate what we see in the New Testament. We're just walking out on a branch saying, Lord, we believe you're here. Would you please come and move? And doubt and cynicism and an unwillingness to step out in ways that feel childlike, but we mistake them for being childish, will disrupt our growth and potential for God to use us in our city. So, 
We live in the kingdom of God by faith. Faith that knows what Jesus has done and what he will do. And faith that lives on the ground saying, Jesus, we believe what you have taught us. And so when you say, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good will to give you the kingdom of God. We will fight the fear in us. That's what this kind of faith is. It's saying, Jesus, you're right. Your word is true. Not what I feel. Because cynicism and emotion and desire bundled up together are the two things that are going to keep you and me from growing in this kind of learning to live in the kingdom of God in its presence and power. We'll either be cynical and say it can't be as simple as Jesus said it is. Let me tell you what. When we pray for healing as a church, we pray for people. Um, We do not pretend that it's just in our power to heal anyone in any way that we want. We do not pretend that faith is something that if you just have enough of it, bam, you will be healed. But you want to know what it sounds like when we pray for people? We just, we don't have any explanation other than the fact that this is how God moves and heals people in the ministry of our church. We say, Lord, we don't understand how this works, but we believe what you said. You tell us to heal the sick and you didn't give us an explanation. But what we see you doing is telling unwell people to be well in Jesus' name. And so, with the knowledge of what they've shared with us that's wrong, we speak over them in the name of Jesus, be healed. And you want to know what I just wish I could be more of an expert in? Explaining some intricate way of praying that's really effective. But it's as simple as that kind of prayer. And the only explanation that I have is God's actually a father who enjoys when his kids take him in his word. When we're willing to look like fools in a culture and context that thinks it knows everything and all that's real is what's observable. But even it knows that it doesn't know everything. So cynicism will disrupt our ability to believe and take hold of what Jesus calls us to in faith. But the other thing that will will disrupt us is submitting to our emotions and our desires, is making them rulers of us rather than indicators of what's going on in us. It is a good thing to be aware of when you are afraid, of when you are anxious, of when you are even depressed, of when you're angry. Those are God-given emotions. He feels many of those things. But in their proper place, they're supposed to be indicators, not leaders. You cannot grow in the kingdom of God if you are enslaved to your emotion. Now, it doesn't work that way mostly for us, though. The way that it mostly comes to attack us subtly is by telling us, I can't do what Jesus is calling me to do because I would feel inauthentic. Inauthenticity is a feeling that assesses what I'm desiring and feeling inside and refuses to obey until I feel rightly so that that obedience can flow from a heart that desired it. You you tracking with me? 
I've heard so many of us in the history of the time that I've been doing ministry for 17 years say, well, I don't feel like doing what Jesus tells me to do here in the scriptures, so I can't do it. Because then that would be legalism. What's legalism? Someone help us get a definition. Thinking that doing stuff saves you. Yeah, 100%. It's believing that I can make God love me. It's believing that I can make God love me more. It's even believing that if I mess up, then God will stop loving me. All of those flow from this central uh, wrong doctrine that would, that's called legalism, okay? Now, here's the problem in our day and in our minds. We have mislabeled obedience to Jesus as legalism. We have thought that if I don't feel like doing something, I should not do it because anytime I obey without feeling like it, it's legalism because somewhere in there, I must be thinking I'm going to earn God's love or he's, he's going to smite me if I don't obey him here. I cannot stress to you how disruptive this way of thinking is to growing in discipleship to Jesus. Jesus, if I can put it this way without us feeling too shaken or hurt, Jesus did not care about telling you and me to obey him. He didn't feel bad at all about that. Why? Because he knew he was leading us into the path of what real human living was in the first place. We do not know. We are all striving to learn how can I be a fulfilled and whole and good human being. That is a desire put into us by our createdness and identity as image bearers of God. Jesus didn't feel bad about telling us how to live because he knew the real way of living as whole human beings. And so when he says, fear not, it's an invitation to a battle inside of us. And faith is saying, I am terrified. If I live generously, who's going to have my back? Well, God will. He puts his name and reputation on it. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good will to give you the kingdom. And the very next thing he, he says is, sell your possessions and give to the poor. So I want to give you one experiment this week. Put Jesus to the test. Put on the possibility that he was not teaching some esoteric philosophy for living way back when, but he was presenting to you and to me a way of being human in the kingdom of God here and now. So here's the challenge. Sell something you have with the mentality that God is your generous Father in heaven who loves you and give what you get to someone in need. I'm not being creative at all with that one. 
That's just straight up Luke 12, what Jesus says to do. Don't be afraid of where your provision is going to come from because, here's the reason, your Father in heaven loves to give to you. Everything is yours. You're one of his kids. He rejoices in giving it away. He's not stingy. So sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have money bags in the kingdom of God that will not grow old or weary. Here's why this is really important for us to try. Because as we learn to obey Jesus, we will start to see that he actually knew what he was talking about. And the Spirit of God actually interacts with our obedience, even when we don't feel like it, to grow us. And as you and I grow in confidence that God's kingdom really is here, and that it really is accessible to you and me as regular old people, guess what then we're a lot more bold to do? To tell other people it's real. One of the reasons that we're so afraid of talking to our lost friends about Jesus is because we're not quite convinced that it's as real as we hope it is. So I want to invite you, put Jesus to the test this week. Sell Sell something small, give it to someone in need. Sell something big, give the proceeds to someone in need. And watch as you take that act that Jesus called violence, taking hold of the kingdom of God and its promises. See how God will move into your life, expand your vision of what living in his kingdom is. And I promise you, God will be faithful. We're going to pray now. One of the other things that will start to grow as you and I are open to this kind of reality with Jesus is our imaginations for what God can do through our prayer and through our everyday life will expand. We'll start to imagine new things that we could be praying for and we'll become more prayerful people. And so, prayer and mission what we've emphasized this year, are really, really at hand if we'll take this lesson, living in the kingdom of God by faith, faith that believes what Jesus said, but faith that also takes hold of his promises. Watch as prayer and mission begin to catch fire within you, okay? So as we pray, uh, I want to invite up Jessica. Jessica, are you in here? Yes, awesome. Let's give Jessica a hand. Coming up. Um, The reason I'm inviting Jessica up um, is because I was having a conversation with her. We were at Sunday prayer from 9.15 to 9.45. Any of you want to come and learn to pray with us? We're here every Sunday. Show up a little early, get a cup of coffee or tea, come back and pray with us. She was here, and we were talking afterwards. And she mentioned something to me, and we started a little conversation of something that I think is very much relevant to all of us as a church when we think communally. If you're not aware, we devoted all of January to 24-7 prayer and happy to report every single hour of January, we had someone in the office upstairs that we turned into a prayer room praying. That's 744 consecutive hours. Amazing. All right? In a very real way, 
we have already started the year with taking hold of the kingdom of God. That was an act of faith. How many times you went to the room not feeling like it, but saying, God will meet me and move through me. That's the violence of the, of the faith that is required to live in the kingdom of God and watch him move. But now it's over. So a couple things. One, the prayer room's still open. You could still go to the same link and sign up to reserve some time as long as it's between 9 and 5, Monday through Thursday, when we'll actually be at the office. No more freewheeling it, come in at 2 a.m., do it whenever you want. I mean, some of you might have learned, it's great to wake up at 2 or 3 a.m. and pray, feel really well about how the fact you pursue God even in your sleep, and then go back to bed a little bit. Maybe. But I want to encourage you, still take advantage of that room. But there's also a danger, okay? So... Jessica, would you tell us a little bit about what you shared with me, about what you've sensed, you know, in January and now that we're out of January, your spirit? Okay. Oh, there's so many people. <laughs> um, yeah, during January, I basically was in the prayer room, like, almost every other day, or at least every week, there's, like, some hours. I feel like there's just a warm feeling knowing like going throughout my day in January, um, I experienced a lot of healing in the prayer room and also people praying for me, and that really helped move me and grew me in that direction. But now that it's over, I just feel like there's a sense of tiredness for some reason, and then I feel like I've been kind of launched into, I feel like I'm getting launched into like the spiritual warfare. Um, I like, can't explain or put like a name to it, yeah. but it just feels like somehow the protection is um, lifted and I feel vulnerable and feel exposed to whatever is going on. Mm -hmm. um, like internally, I feel like there's like a lot of like ups and downs, ups and downs, woo. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, and externally, I mean, we may all look fine, but there's like, I just want to remind everybody that's like, Inside, everybody's going through something like battles, and it'll be nice if like we can each pray for each other again, even in like our like, yeah. not in a room, but like yeah. um, back home or when we walk or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us, Jessica. Um, yeah, you can take a seat. Here's why I wanted her to share that. A, I'm sure others of you are feeling something similar. Combination of tired. It was a, it was a long month. Waking up early, middle of the night, first week, it's pretty easy. Like, oh, great, excited. Fourth week, 3 a.m., doesn't feel quite the same. Okay, there's a tiredness, yes. But also, if we believe that somehow uh, we checked off the prayer box for the year, and if we aren't as engaged and pressed in and vigilant about prayer, we are letting down our guard, okay? We are letting down our guard. And so I wanted to do a couple of things. If you're feeling at all like Jessica was feeling, I'd encourage you to go to the prayer team and receive prayer um, as we transition to our second half of, uh, of the gathering. But also, I want to stir us to renewed zeal, even in the tiredness, to pray. To be people who pray even when we don't have a calendar that we need to fill every hour of. All right? So now what we're going to do is we're going to pray together. We're going to spend about 10 minutes praying to the Lord, inviting him, asking him, calling upon him to move in us and among us, to learn to pray together. If you remember the ABCs of corporate prayer together, 
I'm going to get audible. We're a big room. Pray loudly so that we can hear and be stirred by one another's prayers. Make it brief so many people can pray and make it clear so that we know what you're asking for and what you're praying up to God. I think that what makes sense for us to pray today is that God would give us the kind of humility that can become like kids as we seek to follow him. If we are stuck in believing that we need competence in order to walk in the kingdom, or we're too proud to become like little children, we will never grow in the kingdom of God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this week's episode encouraging and strengthening in your walk with Jesus. For more information on how you can get connected at The Commons LA, please check us out online at thecommonsla.com. There's a lot of great information there. Also, we'd love to have you join us at one of our church gatherings on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Upside Down Cafe in Westwood Village. We hope you'll continue to enjoy these podcast episodes.